Welcome to Expanding Your Faith with Bishop Gregory Godsey and Father Matthew Schnabel. Expanding Your Faith looks at modern faith and spirituality questions, as well as conducts interviews with movers and shakers in different and varied faith traditions. Our broadcast is brought to you by the hardworking staff at the Office of Communications and Media Relations in the Old Catholic Churches International. Stay tuned as we work on expanding your faith. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's Expanding Your Faith. I'm Bishop Greg. Today we are joined by uh, Rabbi in Training uh, Haley Silver, joining us from the great state of California. Um, and, of course, uh, as usual, our producer Spider Max is with us. And uh, we also have Bishop Ben Williams on our panel today as well. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello, hello. Thank you so much, Bishop, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So glad to have you, Haley. I appreciate that. So today we're going to talk about, uh, you know, we just recently uh, had uh, Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit. And some upcoming, uh, uh, or currently going on, an upcoming uh, Jewish feast. Uh, and take your questions about uh, Judaism uh, as well. Uh, Judaism is such a rich uh, religious heritage that uh, I don't think we'll ever get uh, through everything in Judaism. <laughs> I don't care how many podcasts we do. So uh, we do appreciate all of your questions. Uh, as we go through the podcast, um, uh, for those joining us on social media uh, live, uh, you're welcome to submit questions in the window. We'll get to them as quickly as possible and um, so you don't have to wait till the end to type them in you can go ahead and start typing them as we go along or as you think of them um, that way uh, we can get to them as we go along so why don't we start with um, uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur why don't you tell sure. us a little bit about uh, those uh, uh, holidays um, well Thank you so much for having me, and um, I'd be thrilled to talk to you about uh, the Jewish High Holy Days. So we are in a period, or we just passed a period, called the Days of Awe. And the Days of Awe are days about uh, recognizing the awesomeness of divinity. That's what awe is. Mm -hmm. So uh, Rosh Hashanah is literally the head of the year, or the Jewish New Year. Now, funny story, we have quite a few Jewish New Years written throughout the Tanakh, but this is the one that is considered the main Jewish New Year. Mm -hmm. So... Um, this is the big one. We consider it the birthday of creation, whether that's literal or metaphorical. Um, we celebrate the birthday of creation on uh, Rosh Hashanah. And between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we are thinking about and implementing the ways we are going to change for the better in the world. So Rosh Hashanah is um, about hoping for sweetness. It is a celebration. It is recognizing the newness of the year. Um, and between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we move into a period of real deep self-reflection. So it's what have I, where have I missed the mark in the past year? Where could I be better? What are my hopes and my intentions for the new year? Mm -hmm. um, remember the Jewish tradition is about elevating the mundane. So everything that we do that seems mundane and ordinary, we should elevate for a purpose because it all has the capacity to be the one. So, um, 
basically what I'm saying there is I'm saying that every moment should be something that is special. Mm -hmm. We should be thinking about the uniqueness of every moment. Um, so between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we're thinking about these things. And Yom Kippur is considered the, um, the day of judgment. Um, it is the day where we truly take a look at ourselves and we come face to face with the fragility of the human experience. We recognize that we don't have forever to make these changes. We, um, something can happen in the next minute, in the next day, in the next year, mm -hmm. that will end our opportunities to be able to do what it is that we should do. And so confronting that fragility, we recognize the importance of doing something called teshuva, or returning, or repentance um, in the English, where we return to the path that we ought to be on. Um, and this practice, um, this practice is especially poignant during Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, but it is also something that we do throughout the year. Um, and it is about coming to and acknowledging the ways that we've harmed one another and that the actions that we've done against God. Um, in the Jewish tradition, it's very important that uh, we recognize that I am not forgiven for something I do to another person unless that person forgives me. Um, and there's a caveat to that in that if that person is unable to forgive and I've truly repented, there's a couple ways that you have like an understanding of what that means mm -hmm. and the seriousness of that. But uh, Yom Kippur is about finding forgiveness for myself, for others, and um, finding forgiveness for the things that have happened in the year that have been particularly harmful. So um, I remember last year um, and some of this year, I struggled a lot with the pandemic and COVID and the things that happened and learning to forgive um, the way that we have been less than we could be and the way that we've missed so many opportunities with regards to COVID was a really big thing for me. Um, but on a more personal level, it's a time when I, I genuinely go up to my friends and I go up to people that I know and I ask them, in what way could I be better for you? What did I miss? And we have real deep, difficult conversations. Um, and then we uh, apologize for those things. We take the steps to correct those things. Um, Yom Kippur is only the atonement for the, the sins that I've committed against God um, and, uh, or, and things that I've been forgiven for from other people. So it is that atonement. Um, and then as the sun sets on the uh, day of Yom Kippur, we listen to the shofar blasts. Um, the shofar is like a ram's horn and it's an instrument, kind of like a trumpet. Mm -hmm. um, and we listen to that and we hear, uh, essentially, we feel the weight of our souls being awakened um, and the gates of heaven respond. Yes, Spider, I saw a question. Oh, <laughs> uh, what if they don't forgive you, then what? So this is a really good one. I remember I was like in eighth grade um, and uh, we had this situation where I had hurt somebody's feelings. Um, and I really hurt them. And I really didn't mean to, but it happened. Um, and I apologized to them, and they were unwilling to forgive me. Um, and so I spoke to my rabbi, because I went to private Jewish day school, so I had a rabbi right there that I could talk to about it. Um, and my rabbi pointed me, actually, to some Talmud, uh, which said, okay, you're not off the hook just because you apologized once. That's not enough. You need to, there are three sort of ways that you do this. The first is you apologize one time to the person. If the person is unable to forgive you, then your next step, you must wait a while 
and then you must apologize in front of witnesses. So you must apologize in front of people and acknowledge your mistake that you've made. So I went and I did that. Um, and the person was still not able to forgive me. I had really hurt them and they were not able to forgive me. And they said, so what? Um, I'm not ready to forgive you yet. And I understood that. Um, uh, and we, we really have to understand that we aren't necessarily owed that, mm. right? When we harm somebody, we are not owed them simply wiping it away. Um, that's a grace. That's a gift. So, um, so uh, the next step in the Talmud is that you need to make a public declaration of what it is that you did. Um, and you need to make sure that you've taken the steps to not do it again. And so the opportunity presented itself where I was in a position where I could have hurt that person the same way again. Um, and I didn't because I knew what I was doing and I understood that if I had done this thing, if I had used this opportunity, I could have hurt them again. And I didn't do that. So I showed this person that I had changed. And then I apologized to them again and I said, I really have changed. I'm really sorry for what I've done. Please forgive me. And at that point, my friend was able to forgive me because they had seen that I had made the steps that I needed to make. I had taken the steps that I needed to take. Um, and uh, at that point, if you have truly changed, when you have taken the steps that you need to take, the Talmud says that the sin then belongs to that person for being unable to forgive you if they can't forgive you at that moment. But there are some unforgivable sins for which you cannot be forgiven. Those two are um, speaking poorly about somebody else um, it is considered um, it is considered a death of the soul if you denigrate somebody's reputation to the point where they can no longer fix it. Um, it's considered a murder of their of their name, of their good name. Um, and the other is murder, because the person that you have murdered is not able there to forgive you. So those are the two things in the Jewish tradition that are considered unforgivable. Completely unforgivable. Yes, completely. Um, and I, I think that we uh, we have a sort of a slightly different understanding of unforgivable sins in our uh, religious traditions. Okay. Um, so uh, because we don't have a concept of you know hell and eternal damnation and those kinds of things, it is possible for you to carry the weight of an unforgivable sin and be stained by the weight of an unforgivable sin because you've done something unforgivable, and that that just is what it is. Um, the idea is that you hold on to that, you are stained by that, and you have to work consistently to never do something like that again. It means that it's a constant battle in your life, because this has been a problem. Mm. Um, so that's that. Um, and that's sort of Yom Kippur. We have Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. And then five days later, after the nitty-gritty that is Yom Kippur and the deep reflection that is Yom Kippur, we have this beautiful harvest festival. Uh, called Sukkot, which is what we are in right now. Um, it is Moedim La Simcha, so it is the um, the season of our joy, uh, or Zman, uh, Zman Simcha Tenu, the season of our joy. Um, it is uh, it is a joyful holiday. It is a holiday about celebrating the life that we have, celebrating how little it is that we actually need, um, and uh, the harvest, and all of those things, really connecting to the fact that we get an opportunity to live in this world, in this life, and that these are the things that we get to do. Um, and it's celebrated in some really fun and interesting ways. Okay. My favorite is, I've heard it uh, mentioned as a shake a lemon at God week, because we uh, take a lemon, it's an etrogue, and we take um, a bunch of different species of tree and branches, and we quite literally shake uh, <laughs> shake it as a, um, 
as a representation of the way the different types of Jews and the different parts of our body come together to worship. Um, we build like booths, I think is the English translation that is used most often, booths or huts, which are temporary dwellings and temporary structures that we um, sit in and we celebrate the, um, the ways that we truly can get by with very little. Um, and the temporariness of the, each moment, um, this too shall pass, is a very, uh, very poignant phrase during Sukkot. Um, and uh, in general, we have a fantastic time. Um, and at the very end of Sukkot, we finish reading the we finish our reading of the Torah cycle, and we begin again from the beginning. Um, so we begin uh, with Breishit, uh Genesis, and we get to um, we get to start reading it all over again. But yes, that is Sukkot and Sukkot Torah. <laughs> and now we have a couple of uh, upcoming um, holy days in the next yes. couple of weeks, do we not? Yes. So at the end of Sukkot, we have uh, Shemini Atzeret, um, which, fun story, in Jerusalem, Shemini Atzeret and Sukkot Torah, which are words that are very difficult for uh, English speakers. Um, but let me uh, let me say that Simchat Torah is the joy of Torah, so I'll just call it that. Um, we have an assembly uh, holiday, and we have the joy of Torah holiday. And uh, those two things are actually one day in Jerusalem. But because we live here, or I live here in California, in the diaspora, not in Jerusalem, uh, I they are separate holidays because we get a little extra day for joy. Um, so they are separate holidays. We have the assembly day. Um, and then we have the, uh, the day of uh, dancing with the Torah and the joy of the Torah. So it's fun. And we quite literally take the Torah and we dance with it. Now, is that done just in synagogue or is it done out in public? Um, that's or? done in synagogue. Uh, the dancing with the Torah is done in synagogue. Usually what will happen is you'll completely unscroll the Torah because you have to re-scroll it because you get from one side to the other. So you have to open it all the way up and re-scroll it um, and you pass it around so folks can dance with it. Slightly different with COVID restrictions. Not sure how much passing around the Torah is going to happen. <laughs> but uh, yes, you dance with it. It's like it is a day when they say the Torah gains legs because we are the legs of the Torah and we bring the Torah into the world. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> um, so is the Torah literally one scroll? Or is oh, it yeah. more than one? So it's like a big scroll. There's um, like a lot of words in that thing. So, so yes, the the Torah scroll is one big scroll. Okay. Um, and it is made out of uh, is made out of things sewn together. So there are different pieces of it that are sewn together and glued together. Um, but it's one big scroll. It's very heavy. Um, it, I remember. I, it's two sides though rolled in, right? Yes. It, it, uh, well, it depends. Okay. If you are Ashkenazi like me, which means that you are of European extraction. Okay. Uh, meaning that you've lived in the European diaspora and your family and your heritage is that, we have a double-sided Torah scroll. Um, if you are Sephardic, meaning that you come from sort of Spain, Morocco area, you're part of that extraction, then um, that is uh, that is a one scroll that just rolls up like one scroll and holds it like a, like a child. Now, how big do you think they are in, like, diameter? Um, because so, they have uh, a lot, there, there's a lot in them. There is a lot in them. Um, they are relatively large. I mean, they're the size of a, of a child. They're at least the size of a child. 
um, most of the, uh, I would say the size of a toddler, um, most of the Taurus girls that I've ever uh, seen and lifted. Um, so you have to have some muscle. Yes, you do. Okay. Um, and nobody ever lifts it alone. We have, uh, it's actually considered quite an honor to be able to like lift up the Torah. So you will, um, like people will be able to carry it on their own, but usually there is a, um, there's a lifting of the Torah done by like two people and a dressing of the Torah because the Torah has this beautiful cover on it. Um, and we like take it off and to read it and then we put it back on. Like it has a cute little belt that we snap together, and it's got like some crowns on it. It's beautiful. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Uh, James asks: Is breaking the Sabbath or yearly high days something that can be forgiven? Um. So that would be considered a sin against God. Um. If it's a, it, it depends on if it's a sin and those kinds of things. Um, but the idea of not remembering the Sabbath and what that constitutes is going to be different no matter where you are. So, um, for some people, it's like, if you drive, that's a problem. But for other people, it's like, if you do work, that's a problem. Or if you are unkind on the Sabbath, that's the problem. So what, where the sin lies is going to be a question. That's going to be the, the question that people will debate. But, uh, yes, that is something that you can do for you. What is it like, so the Sabbath is that particular day and you can't change the day no matter what? Or... So the Sabbath is, um... The Sabbath is Friday night to Saturday night. So that's why I'm always so late for Bishop when <laughs> we have our podcasts. Because uh, Shabbat is uh, Friday Friday evening to Saturday evening. And that is considered a day of rest and a day of holiness. Um, and we are supposed to uh, create a space for our souls to expand on those days. We're supposed to create space for us to be um, to be truly connected with one another and to not be distracted by the things of the world. Um, so that is always Friday night to Saturday night, every week, forever and ever and ever. Um, with the one exception that if you are in the middle of the desert and you lose track of time all by yourself, as long as you create a Sabbath for yourself every seven days, it will be considered as if you have celebrated the Sabbath. So it, what if you're like injured or something and end up in the hospital or whatnot? Oh yeah. The Kulak Nefesh takes over for that. So, um, there's a, there's a, there's a, a line. Um, or there's this idea that um, that pikuach uh, nefesh is saving a life, and in the case of being able to save a life, we are supposed to break every commandment. So whatever we can do in order to save a life, that's what we do. So if you end up in the hospital, you end up in the hospital. If you have to get a COVID shot on Shabbat, you get a COVID shot on Shabbat. If you have to, um, you have to take care of somebody. You have to take care of somebody. Spider is a uh, spider is a Talmudic scholar. This is what the Talmudic scholars do: is they sit and they look for loopholes. So it's a good <laughs> see, yeah. see, I'm a loophole expert. Ah, there you go. <laughs> James would also like to know what is your view on the Rebbe's and the dynasty. Um, so I am not Hasidic. Um, so my experience with the Rebbe's and the understanding of that, I'm not going to be able to speak too much on that. Because as a non-Hasidic Jew, the Hasidic Rebbe's um, and their their contribution to Chabad lifestyle and Hasidic lifestyle is not something that I'm going to be able to speak on with any sort of knowledge. Um, so uh, I have a lot more learning to do in that area, and I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, because I'm certain that there are people who can talk about that from a level of experience that I don't. Um, 
as a, uh, I grew up in the conservative movement. I'm currently a trans-denominational Jew. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm currently a trans-denominational Jew in the sense that I feel comfortable in many spaces, uh, but it also leaves me with uh, the opportunity to learn quite a bit more than what I have learned in the past. And mm. one of those things is the understanding of how, how the Hasidic rabbis have um, shaped Chabad Judaism and Hasidic Judaism. Very cool. Thanks. Spider um, has a whole yeah. list of questions. Perfect. Uh, and thank you, Spider, for saying that you like when I do the sound. It's a. I do, but it's it's funny though because even when you say who, you yes. still do it, and I love I, it. <laughs> I sometimes do it just any H sound, which is a yeah. problem actually. It changes the word, um, and people make fun of me for it because it does change the word if I use it in the wrong place. <laughs> I didn't think about that. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a word that it would change. Anyway. <laughs> Why you got to wrap me out, Bishop? <laughs> right. uh, keep going with the holidays. I mean, I can keep talking about the holiday cycle. Go right ahead. talk more about the holiday cycle. Go ahead. Um, after, um, after Sukkot, um, pretty sure it's to be shot. Could be. Probably to be shot. Um, and then uh, Tu Bishvat is uh, a day of celebrating the trees. We love to celebrate trees. And um, yeah, Spider, you need to learn some Hebrew so that you can start making sounds also. Um, and then uh, and then we have Purim, which is my favorite Jewish holiday. I say that about every Jewish holiday, and my students always yell at me about that. Like you just said, this was your favorite holiday a month ago. And I'm like, yeah. Yes, I did. Um, but I am a different person than I was a month ago, and therefore Purim is not my favorite holiday. Um, uh, Purim is the uh, it's the story of the Book of Esther. So if you're familiar with the story of Esther, you're familiar with uh, Purim, and uh, we love an excuse to celebrate trees. Yes, <laughs> uh, and Purim is uh, basically it is the celebration of the fact that we were able to. It's the first attempted genocide of the Jewish people, and it's the celebration of the fact that we were saved and we were able to um, survive that. Unless you consider Pesach and Passover and the Exodus story, the first attempted genocide of the Jewish people, which you could easily uh, consider them that. But being that we didn't have mm. the 10 commandments at that moment, uh, it wasn't like we were technically Jewish, we were Hebrews and that's a whole different story. I feel um, like you should explain to the podcasty listener people yes. about the Ten Commandments and how you told me that they're like oh, categorized or categories. Sure. So we often hear the phrase the Ten Commandments, um, especially if we're speaking in uh, sort of European theological or religious senses. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look heavily into it, uh, no one's really sure what the Ten Commandments are specifically. Like, does one commandment is it does it click with one other or another? And I shouldn't say no one's sure. People have made their distinctions. They've made their. They, they've said that these are the Ten Commandments, and so it depends on which branch of religion you're in mm-hmm. that deals with the Old Testament um, that will tell you what the Ten Commandments are. That said, in the Jewish tradition, we consider them to be ten categories of commandments, and the reason we consider it to be ten categories of commandments is if you actually look through all of the laws in the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, the first five books they're called of Moses. So if you look into Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, 
you will find a total of 613 commandments. Um, and those are the 613 commandments that the Jewish people consider themselves bound by. Um, so it's a lot of commandments, uh, almost not enough time to fulfill all of them, uh, but definitely uh, definitely a, a good goal and a good thing to do. Do you have to memorize them all? Gosh, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if I memorize them all, I would be a problem. Um, no. I have, uh, I, I study which ones are coming up because some of them are holiday based. Um, so there are a couple, a uh, couple specific commandments that have to do with Sukkot. Um, so like sitting in the sukkah is one of the commandments. Like you have to sit in the sukkah and eat in the sukkah. What's Building a sukkah? a sukkah is the commandment. Sukkah is the booth. Oh, um, the, the, the temporary the house building. Yes. The temporary house building. Um, it's the tent building is shaking a lemon at God holiday. Um, anyhow, for that one, uh, we have a couple of specific commandments. So those are the ones that only apply during that holiday. And then as the holidays come up, you pay attention to which ones are commanded. And then there are some that are just commanded all of the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, like, uh, I mean, remembering a Shabbat, keeping it holy is one that is commanded all of the time. Um, all sorts of things. Uh, the way keeping kosher is commanded all of the time. Um, those kinds of things. What's the yes. definition of kosher? Good. Kosher quite literally <laughs> means fit or appropriate. Like that's an appropriate thing for you to do. That's kosher. Um, but when we say kosher, when I say kosher, uh, what I'm talking about is dietary laws, dietary restrictions. And there are a lot of dietary restrictions uh, that are bound on the Jewish people. Um, the sort of most famous is that we don't eat pork. Um, that's the most famous one. We also don't eat shellfish. Um, we are not allowed to have uh, dairy and meat in the same meal. Um, we are not allowed to uh, ha eat anything that doesn't have cleft toes and chew its own cud. That's what's listed in the Torah. Um, so y'all can't have hamburger helper. Well, does hamburger helper have cheese? It's in got it? cheese, milk, and burger. No, that's that's not a thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm I, good with uh, that, actually. <laughs> yeah. <it's not>. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, yes, so we have a lot of dietary restrictions and things that we think about on a daily basis. What about medical procedures such as, oh, that's all fine. So uh, the question was, what about medical procedures such as a porcine valve replacement? Um, so uh, there's actually a really famous uh, depiction of this on one of the TV shows, one of the medical TV shows. Um, and they get it entirely wrong in the TV show. Uh, this Orthodox Jew has a problem with getting a, uh, a pig valve in his heart to save his life. That would never be the case in real life. Um, and the reason is because of that thing we talked about earlier, pikuach nefesh. Um, uh, pikuach nefesh is saving a life. And the idea is that while we may not consume something, we can in order, we can have it in our bodies in order to save life. Because for us, the way that we act out holiness, being able to live the Torah, being able to experience and change the world, we have to be alive to do that. And in order to be alive, we should not die by the commandments. The idea is that we are not to die by the commandments. We are meant to live by them yes. because they make the world better. So uh, that's Pikulach Nefesh, saving it. 
That's a very good question. I actually asked Rabbi Robert that the other day. We we got into a discussion about because one of the questions that had been asked of one of our Muslim guests, uh, you know, last season during one of the podcasts was that same question. Yeah. You know, would a Muslim be able to receive a um, uh, pig valve or something in the case of you know needing it? And the answer was, depending upon how observant of a Muslim they were, they might say yes or they might say no. And so the question was asked, you know, what do the Jewish uh, people believe? Uh, because, you know, they hold themselves to the same standard, essentially. No, um, you know, no eating of pork and that kind of thing. And so I asked Rabbi Robert that, and, and that was his answer, too. You know, essentially it's a matter of saving a life, and that's what's more yeah. important. Um, so, um, of course, they, like you said, they do have bovine uh, valves yes. now, which kind of takes that uh, question out of play. But <laughs> And the idea is that if you can do it in a more kosher way, you should do it in a more kosher way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, one of the things we do on Yom Kippur is we fast. Now, I have a medical condition that requires me to take medication on food. So I have to eat food and take medication. Yes. Um, that's allowed. I'm allowed to do that. But there's a difference between my eating something I really, really like and taking food and, and talking about how, oh, I don't have to fast on Yom Kippur versus me eating the minimum amount that I need to eat in order to keep my body going so that I can still partake in the spirit of the fast. Um, so there's different levels of what is kosher. Uh, Bishop Ben, what's your question? Well, I have a question because here in, in Houston, Texas, we have a big Jewish community, and they have their own private ambulance and private police force. Is that a standard thing for, throughout the community? So um, that is a, that is not exactly standard, but that is standard for um, certain branches of orthodoxy. Um, so if you are a Hasidic Jew, there are many concerns with regards to um, modesty, many concerns with regards to... Um, to, uh, to things like how we handle life or death situations. Um, and so because of that, there is something called Hatzlacha, um, which is the uh, Jewish sort of uh, Jewish sort of ambulance service and Jewish police force. Um, and the reason for that is to sort of maintain the religious stringency while making sure that we take care of uh, medical needs and legal needs. Um, so, uh, so it's not standard for most of Judaism, but it is standard for, uh, certain branches of Orthodoxy. Do you have that in your community as well, out there in California? So there, there, that does exist out in California. It's not something that I use because I don't have those stringencies that, um, the Orthodox community is concerned about. Um, uh, so it's not something that I've ever used. But uh, I was talking to uh, an Orthodox boy at one point, and I messaged him and said that it was really hot at a theater backstage, and he said, I'm sending Katsmacha for you. I'm sending the ambulance to you. Um, he didn't actually, but uh, <laughs> it was something that was in his vocabulary and not necessarily in my region vocabulary. Okay. That is, the reason why I bring that up is because I was curious, because we were recently, I'm a volunteer firefighter, so they asked me to assist, and they were kind of like nervous about having us on scene, but we were there to back them up if they needed us. So we were there just to help out. And That's people, awesome. People were asking me questions. I'm like, I can't answer that. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> part of the community. <laughs> yeah, it's a, um, definitely we'll reach out uh, and we'll definitely ask for help. Um, and that's awesome that you were able to be there for them. 
uh, yeah, they they they're dealing with things like um, they're dealing with things like if you have uh, you know if you're pregnant, you're having a child. There are certain mm-hmm. things that need to be done when you're having a child that it is just easier if you already know all the laws. So they created this uh, that makes sense to deal with that. Um, it, there are some things that like it, it's just easier and people who won't have to explain you know their dietary restrictions mm-hmm. while they're getting well in the hospital that they makes won't sense. have to explain you know those kinds of things so it's it's a nice thing to have oh it is and that was amazing that how fast they were there to assist their community oh yeah and th- in some cases i've seen them respond faster than we can and it's like wow but it's yeah, amazing how, how well they do and how, how well they help the community yeah so and, I, I and they're amazed by yeah, they're incredible. Um, they're and they're always right there, you know, because they're, they're living in the same community, and it's it's your neighbors, right? When you have this volunteer force, they're, yes. they're your neighbors, they're your friends. It's somebody you know. It's having a familiar face when you're going into some dealing with something like life or death. So it's really nice. Now I have to have one more question, and I don't mean to take up take up your time, but uh, what about I saw a video on TikTok with a rabbi that was uh, I would think it would be called blessing items in the kitchen. But he was using hot water. What is that process and what does it entail? Sure. So that's the process of koshering something or making something kosher. Um, And basically what you have to do is you have to burn away all of the other uh, food that might have been on it. Um, So you have hot water so you can kosher uh, a stove or kosher kosher your sink or your plates, those kinds of things. Um, And you want to make everything that you have in your home fit and kosher so that you're starting from a place of uh of cleanliness um back in the day it prevented a lot of disease to make sure you were this careful about that uh now it's it has both the idea of that and being um being a spiritual practice as well um but yes you're starting from a place where everything is you're intending everything's use you know how you're going to be using something which makes something holy because a holy object can be anything if it's used for a holy purpose. Very cool. Thank you for answering. I really appreciate your knowledge. Thank you so You're much. You're so welcome. You guys are so kind to me. Seriously, I appreciate it. I just ask the weird things. Like, for That's instance, for instance, yes. <laughs> do you take, well, I guess I'm, it wouldn't be the Bible. It's Torah, right? Yes. Do you well, take Torah and Tanakh. Yeah, I can't say that one. Um, <laughs> do you take it a hundred percent literal? Literally, Gosh, no. that word, that word. Literally. Yeah, literally. <laughs> um, you cannot be Jewish and take the Tanakh literally. And some people might fight me on that, but let me explain why. Um, you cannot be, you cannot be a biblical literalist as a Jew because of the amount of work that has been done first of all we believe that the um that there were two torahs handed down at sinai so there was the written torah um and there was the oral torah so the written torah is what we see in the writing it's the scroll it's all of that but the oral torah um the oral torah is the torah of the mouth uh torah from the mouth and it is explaining the written torah so we believe that there is a lot that explains what's already written so if we eat that, if we do hold to be binding, that explanation wouldn't exist if we were biblical literalists. Um, additionally, there are um, uh, there are 
different levels with which we interpret the Torah. It's called Pardes, and it's a little bit much to get into. Um, but the idea is that we experience things on four different levels. So we have um, we have the the literal level. Uh, that's one interpretation. We have uh, the um, the hidden level. We have the level of storytelling, and then we have the secret level. And every verse in the Torah has all of those levels of understanding in it. So if we we can't be biblical literalists and acknowledge those things. So that's why I say that. Um, Interesting. Along with that question, did God really make man in his image? So this is actually the first subject of Maimonides. Maimonides is a famous Jewish philosopher. And his first book, The Guide for the Perplexed, I don't know if it was his first book, one of his books, The Guide for the Perplexed, is exactly talks about that question. And the question is, and it's a good question, if God is not a physical being, then how can God create man in his image? Does that mean that God looks like man and man looks like God? Maimonides says, absolutely not. Um, there's no way. And what we're talking about when we talk about the image of God, we're talking about, in Hebrew, it's called Betzelem Elohim, or the Zelem of God, uh, the purpose of God, the telos, if you're looking at Aristotle, the telos of God, or the essence of God. That is what we're talking about when we talk about image. So what is God's essence? Maimonides says truth, understanding truth, rational thought, um, creation. Those are the things that we as humans are meant to engage in. Um, so we are, we ought to be looking at things through a rational thought process. We ought to be doing creative good acts. That's what it means to be created by Salam Elohim. And also to see the divinity in one another and to recognize that everybody who exists on this planet is created with divinity in them exactly as they are meant to be. I can I see that. You had a lot to say to that. I, I, do, well, I was going to say, I think Spider has a question. Yes. Well, I've got like random questions. Anyway, um, <laughs> so you believe that the pretty much the spark of the divine's in everybody. Yes. Right? Yes. You believe that it's in everything too. Oh, like, that's a really good question. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's a really good question because then you come up to this question. It's a really good Jewish religion philosophy question because are we then talking about panentheism in the idea that there that God is in everything? Okay. Or are we talking about monotheism, um, which is the idea that there is one God? What are we talking about? So that's going to be a debated question. That said, I believe there is sparks of holiness in all things in the world, and we are meant to get those sparks of holiness and bring them together and create a holy world. Um, so I believe in the sparks of holiness and everything. I don't know that that means necessarily that God is in everything. Right? Okay. Um, I believe that everything can be used for a godly purpose. That everything has a divine um, divine purpose. Like what that about animals? Oh gosh, animals are divine as far as I'm concerned. I, I I am in love with my animals. They are they they experience the world in such a way that they understand what is true and what is good and what is right without us yeah. ever having to tell them. 
they are simply pure creatures and so I love animals yes and then now I forget what my other question was it was along the lines of how do you make sure your thoughts aren't whatever words you used earlier oh panentheism <laughs> that's a good question um it's it's simply a matter of discussion the the most famous story about um being jewish and learning to be jewish is uh is that there was this famous rabbi rabbi hillel and this guy comes up to him and says uh tell me the entirety of the jewish tradition while standing on one foot um and you have to do it really fast um and rabbi hillel said while standing on one foot um he said that which is hateful to you do not do unto others um, the rest is commentary. That is the whole of Torah. The rest is commentary. Now go learn and study. And so this go learn and study is a very important part of the Jewish tradition. We are supposed to go. We are supposed to learn. We are supposed to study. We're supposed to engage with our tradition because we wouldn't be on this planet. God has a specific understanding of us. We wouldn't be on this planet. We wouldn't have been created if we weren't meant to uncover something in the world that didn't exist before us. So, every day that we are given the opportunity to be here, every day that we are that we wake up in the morning, that is God's personal stamp of approval, saying, I believe in you today. You can do it today. You have a new chance to do something today. I believe in you. I have a weird, very uh, depressing, daunting question. Go for it. What does uh, Judaism think about suicide? So suicide is considered to be, uh, I mean, suicide is bad because the whole point is that we want to save lives. But that said, we need to talk about the pain that is involved in somebody who, who is, you know, who is experiencing that. I'm not going to, and no person should ever judge them for that amount of pain because mm -hmm. that isn't, first, it's never going to be helpful. Yes. But it also denies us the opportunity to be compassionate and loving and to do what we ought to do in that moment to help the person who is experiencing these thoughts. If I think a lot of the time what we'll try to do when we're experiencing somebody who somebody who is that upset is we'll want to distance ourselves from them and we'll say, oh, well, you're just wrong to be experiencing that or something like that. that that's impossible. That's not the case. We have a specific job when we experience pain we have a job. I have a duty to somebody who's experiencing that. I have to help them to see the world for what the beauty that it can be and to see themselves for as powerful as they are. And if I fail in that job, then I fail in that job, right? And then that's on me too. So um, suicide is is e easily one of the most sad, um, sad things that can exist. Uh, intentionally taking one's own life is, is, is so painful and it's so upsetting and it hurts. Um, and the community really feels a loss when we do that, when that happens in our midst, because we weren't able to be there for somebody in the way that they needed us to be. So, yeah. I like how you explain that. Um, the idea of community being there for that person. Uh, I think that's something that we uh, neglect in Christianity. Uh, is that idea of community. We, we tend to put suicide all on the person who has committed suicide. Um, but they didn't get there by themselves. You know, that no. they were left in that hopelessness and that feeling being overwhelmed 
by the rest of the community. We didn't do our part to help them. Um, and so I think that in Christianity we have forgotten that concept, sadly. It, I mean, that is, it's sad. And it's hard because the natural tendency when we're dealing with discomfort is to try and shoo, us, shoo ourselves away from it, protect ourselves from it. Um, and that's why I think something like Yom Kippur, hold it. Um, what I was saying, Bishop, is that uh, I think that that's one of the things is, that is so beautiful about Yom Kippur is the ability to face the discomfort that comes with our own fragility and our sadness. Sure. Um, we don't shy away from those things, and we recognize our duty and our responsibility when we don't shy away from those things. Certainly. So um, that is that is a um, that's an important part of being Jewish, is understanding that. I am uncomfortable in certain spaces and that that too is holy. I'm allowed to be uncomfortable. I should be uncomfortable. There are things that should that don't feel wonderful. And that means that I've uncovered a piece of the world that I'm meant to heal. Certainly. Um, so that's that. Bishop Ben, you have a question? Yes, I was going to ask Haley. As everybody knows, I'm the resident funeral director for the old Catholic Church here. And my thing is, in mortuary school, they didn't teach us about Jewish Jewish burial rites and respect of, of, of course, to the family and their decedents. Now, I would like to see if you can elaborate and educate us more on the procedures, you know, for people that may not know about the, the process. For sure. So um, Jewish funeral rites and memorial rites are, are pretty interesting. Um, what we do is after a person has passed, um, we we essentially view it as if the spirit lingers with the body um, until they're buried. And so we, um, we cover all of the mirrors in the home uh, because one of the thoughts is that the spirit uh, no longer being in the body will try to look at themselves and can't find themselves. And so they'll be lost. Um, so we cover all of the mirrors in the home. Um, we have somebody sit with the body and pray uh, psalms, uh, psalms with the body, um, and so they are they're watching over um, this person who has just passed until they can be buried, and we bury quickly. Uh, we want to move through this process of grieving um, not quickly, but we want it to have the weight that it has. So we will quickly take. You know, take the body to a mortuary where a person will uh, sit with the body and prepare the body for burial. Um, the family who is in mourning will, uh, if they're not already notified, they'll be notified. Um, and we will attempt to have the funeral service the next day if we can. Um, and that helps the family acknowledge this fundamental shift and change that has happened. Um, we have a process of which means tearing. So uh, we will, it, to represent the way someone has been torn from our lives, we will uh, either wear a ribbon that, uh, the immediate family will wear a ribbon that they then tear um, to signify the way that person has been ripped from their lives, um, or they will tear their own clothing um, in order to uh, experience that and have a physical manifestation of that pain. Um, 
we then gather together. It's very important that we gather together in community um, to uh, support the mourners. And the mourners will go through a process of lighting a candle, um, sitting Shiva. Uh, sitting Shiva is going into their own homes and having the community take care of them. So the community comes to their homes and brings them food and prays with them on a daily basis and helps them say the mourner's Kaddish, which is um, a prayer that uh, we say in honor of the passing of someone. Uh, and it's funny because it doesn't mention death at all. What it mentions is the greatness uh, of life. It mentions the greatness of God. And the reason we do that is we want to ground and root ourselves, especially in our moments of deepest pain, in the promise of tomorrow. Because mm. it is so easy to feel alone when we are harmed and hurt this way. It is so easy to feel like there's no one for us and that we're alone. And so the whole practice is that the community comes to you, we acknowledge your pain, and we sit with you in your pain, and we ground you and root you in your traditions so that you're not lost, you have somewhere to go. Um, and to some extent, there are different things that happen from seven days out to 30 days out to a year out. And then every year on the Jewish anniversary of the person's passing, we recite again the Mourner's Kaddish for them. Um, and uh, in my, my, uh, my synagogue, we have a tradition that no person ever stands alone. Um, so we have the mourners rise um, and everybody who's not mourning will sit. But if there's only if there's a mourner who's standing by themselves, somebody else will rise and stand next to them. Not so much again with COVID. Um, but somebody else will rise and stand next to them, and show them that we too are mourning with them, and we've got them. Um, it's very important in our tradition to uh, be there for one another and to show um, to show up when we're needed, because we are the hands of God in the world. We are the ones who can do what is right in the world. So that's what we do. Thank you for that. I greatly appreciate your knowledge and expertise, and you're an amazing person. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, I'm very, very happy to share, and I appreciate being among this great group of people who are always interested. So, thanks. We love having you. Spider, do you have any other questions? <laughs> I, I, I do. Oh, I have a weird one. Go. So... Don't quote me on how it's said, but the thing that the men wear, the yarmulke, right? Yes, kippah. Yes. Okay. Is there a what is is there a a women's? I almost said essential, but that's not the word. What a great uh, equal question. Thingy, equal thing yeah. or whatever the word is. What a great question, Spider. So um, this is actually a very um, very important conversation that we're having in uh, in in uh, in our communities right now. So. If you're in the Orthodox world, um, a yarmulke is a men's garment, pretty much period, that's it, it's a men's garment. Um, and men are commanded to wear it because they need the constant reminder that God is above them um, and that God that they are, they are meant to be doing things. Women, supposedly in the Orthodox world, do not need that reminder because we create life within us. This is very gendered, you know it's very gendered, we're all very clear it's gendered. Um, uh, so we don't need that reminder, so we don't have it. That said, Orthodox women will adopt a head covering after marriage for a different purpose. They will adopt a head covering after marriage um, called a tickle um, or a wig, a shadow. Um, uh, so they'll wear either a scarf or a wig. Um, 
uh, in the Orthodox world, and that signifies their new status as a married person. Um, the physical manifestation of the idea that my my only intimacy, my most precious and cherished intimacy, is with my partner. So um, that's the case in the Orthodox world. In the conservative world, um, and in the Reform world, and in the Reconstructionist world, kipot are for everyone. Um, they may not be equally bound upon all people, but they are for everyone. So I have a friend who is becoming a rabbi in the conservative movement, um, and she has always worn kippot her whole life, or she's worn a yarmulke her whole life, um, but she's decided that she doesn't like the feel of them, they're not super fun, uh, so she's going to wear a tichel, she's going to wear a scarf instead, um, because, hey, they're good for bad hair days, um, and she's going to wear that. And she, uh, that is going to function as her yarmulke, as her head covering, because she too believes she is bound by that commandment. Um, there are all sorts of different kipot that are feminine. If you feel like you need a feminine one for whatever reason, if you don't feel like you need a feminine one, then you can wear a men's kippa. I run the gamut. I will wear headbands. I will wear kipot. I will wear veils. I will wear scarves. Um, I'll wear hats. I'll wear whatever I want. Um, as a head covering, and I wear a head covering a lot of the time. Um, anytime that I find myself about to pray, that's what I do. All right. So, so it would not be uh, yes, my... spider. Go ahead. I was going to say it would not be my podcast if I didn't say something stupid uh, at least once during the podcast, <laughs> and so I will say. Do you think that it could be that men are commanded to wear it because men tend to be more egotistical and full of themselves, and so that's why they need a reminder that God's over them? Um, that is exactly the, uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, what the Orthodox said. That is ex- word for word, almost. That is exactly what the Orthodox tradition holds, that men need more reminders of the divine um, because they tend to get too full of themselves. I, I feel that very deep in my spirit. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's there's a lot of things actually. Um, when you look at the 613 meets vote, the time bound meets vote, or the ones that are specifically time based, those in Orthodox Judaism are commanded on men to remind them that they're they've got something to do every couple of minutes, so they don't get too full of themselves. Like you've got something that you have to do. In a minute. <laughs> this is sounding more and more like my kind of tradition. Anyway, Spider, <laughs> what were you going to say? So this is a loaded question. I know we're running out of time. But I know where I go right now, I know that they accept trans people and whatnot, right? Yes. But as a trans person that is Jewish, how do they transition then with everything that has happened leading up to that, if that makes sense? Uh-huh any sense. (laughs) Yeah, no, it does. Um, The truth of the matter is that most of Judaism is wildly accepting of trans people. There are uh, responses um, in the conservative movement. There's teshuvas, they're called, uh, so returns. Um, There are all sorts of things that are written about how um, a trans person can experience Judaism in a way that is meaningful to them. Um, Even in the Orthodox world, that exists. Uh, the understanding that we ought to call somebody by the name they tell us is their name, um, that we must use their pronouns, that we ought to treat them as if they are the gender they tell us they are, regardless of what we may experience or think. But is there um, anything that they would have to do because 
let's say growing up female, there are certain things that I guess, you know, are different than growing up male in the Jewish traditions that are a little bit different. Would they have to then re go through that as who they are? So, or, yeah. so they may, they may, it depends specifically on what it is. Um, uh, there's all sorts of questions about Jewish ritual that a trans people will have to um, do and deal with. Um, the, the sort of standard answer is that if somebody is a trans man, they will then have to adopt all of the mates vote that are binding on men. Um, that said, we did just have uh, today a uh, non-binary kid come upon their b'nai mitzvah. Um, and we had to find the appropriate Hebrew translations for what to call them and what the, what the, um, what the service is going to mean for them. And they mm. did an amazing job, and their father did an amazing job, and their mother did an amazing job. That's awesome. Um, and the whole community did a great job. So um, it, it, the idea is that we are growing and learning about what it means to uh, understand gender from this fluid sense in the American world, and we are reopening the way it looks in, um, in the Jewish world, because we do have a lot of gender fluidity in the Jewish world. That's good. I can't put my hand on it right now, but Rabbi uh, Robert sent me um, a couple of months back an article in one of the Jewish magazines, and, and I can't remember even the name of the magazine right off the top of my head, about that very topic. Um, uh, you know, um, the, the new face of gender when it comes to transgenderism or uh, non-binary or gender fluid or in Judaism. and. Um, it was written by, I believe, a trans rabbi, um, and uh, they spoke of many of the changes that are happening in communities across the United States, especially uh, when it comes to how to uh, um, uh, deal with what has been even gendered wording. Um, in yes. services and rituals and uh, and whatnot, and so um, if I put my hand on it again, I'll place it in Discord so that everybody can read it if they want. It's a rather lengthy article, but it's, it's a good article. Um, <clears throat> if anybody would like to read Here's that, we also have um, uh, for those that wonder, we do have a Discord um, where you can ask questions and things uh, and find more information about uh, faith. Um, uh, I don't have the link with me, but we'll post that up uh, in the description of the podcast so that you can join. Uh, thank you, Rabbi Haley, for uh, Rabbi, soon to be Rabbi Haley, uh, for being here with us tonight. Uh, and uh, thanks to our panel, Bishop Ben and Spider, for joining us as well. <clears throat> it is always a pleasure to have you uh, with us. And as um, Spider has said repeatedly, we'll have to have you back again. <laughs> Thank you. I am honored. Um, this was fun. Thank you so much. Have a great evening. And thank you all for joining us tonight. Remember, you can check us out on Facebook at Expanding Your Faith. Um, Facebook.com forward slash Expanding Your Faith. This can also be found at anchor.fm forward slash Expanding dash your dash faith. And uh, join us again next Saturday when we once again work to expand your faith. Have a great night.